Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the resumption of Israel's war on Gaza and get an intelligence assessment of the devastating 40-page report called Jericho Wall that was analysed and shared by Israeli military and intelligence officials for a year before the October 7th attack by Hamas. The document outlined in detail with uncanny accuracy and chilling precision the Hamas plan of attack, leading many to wonder whether it reached Netanyahu and why it was ignored. Joining us is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of the Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counter-Terrorist Center and was Deputy Chief of that center. He is currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and we will discuss his article at Responsible Statecraft, Truce Ends, Israeli Assault Resumes on Gaza. Then, with plans underway for a memorial service in New York City for Henry Kissinger, at which praise will be heaped upon the elder statesman, we'll speak with Greg Grandin, a professor of history at Yale University. The author of The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and Fordlandia, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and the National Books Critics Award. His books also include The Last Colonial Massacre, Kissinger's Shadow, The Empire of Necessity, and Empire's Workshop, The United States, Latin America, and the Making of an Imperial Republic, recently updated in an expanded edition. We will discuss his article at The Nation, A People's Obituary of Henry Kissinger, and how the realpolitik capture of American power has been devastating for victims of superpower surrogate wars as we act according to our so-called interests and not according to our ideals. Then finally, we'll look into how deregulation made airline travel so miserable and how a lack of investment in infrastructure has made air travel increasingly dangerous with air traffic controllers pushed to the brink as they rely on antiquated equipment. Joining us is Ganesh Sitaraman, a law professor and director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator for Political Economy and Regulation. He is the author of several books, including The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution and The Great Democracy. He is a member of the Federal Aviation Committee's Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee and was previously a senior advisor to Senator Elizabeth Warren on her presidential campaign. His latest book, Just Out, is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. 
We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of the Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center and was Deputy Chief of that center, and he's currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Truce Ends, Israel's Assault Resumes on Gaza. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Pillar. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And of course, we'll talk about the truce ending and Israel's assault on Gaza resuming and their negotiating team has been pulled from Gaza. So it's the the war is on with a vengeance. But I wanted to talk to you about the extraordinary article in the New York Times on December the 1st that indicates there was an extensive intelligence dossier, a 40-page document known, codenamed Jericho Wall, which outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that took place on October the 7th that that killed 1,200 people and took 240 hostages, and it's sort of chapter and verse in an uncanny way. So people are comparing it to the U.S.'s lack of preparation and understanding about prior to the 9-11 attacks. So would you put it in that category? Well, only insofar as it uh, uh, follows a familiar script of public recriminations about uh, supposedly not connecting the dots and so on. Uh, uh, Beyond that, I would not put it in the same category. Um, You know, there will be plenty of recriminations in Israel for months and probably years to come uh, regarding October 7th. There will be follow-on commissions and inquiries and and recommendations for change. You know, that that follows a script as well. But I think in this instance, Ian, in addition to any outright failures within the intelligence and security services uh, in Israel that might be pointed to quite legitimately, I think the political context you know, within Israel has to be considered in, in interpreting what happened here. And what I'm referring to is the fact that you know, Netanyahu, the prime minister, has billed himself for years as Mr. Security. Uh, he and his government um, you know, propounded the message before October 7th that they had things in hand, that, uh, that Israel was secure. And they particularly had a, a motivation to emphasize this message over these last few months with that highly controversial set of proposals involving overhauling the judiciary in Israel, which of course was extremely divisive and uh, generated street demonstrations and so on, and subjected Netanyahu and his government to the criticism that by trying to push this agenda through, they had divided Israel in such a way that Israel's foreign uh, and security enemies would take advantage of that. And so there was this strong inclination on the part of Netanyahu and his team to to, uh, dispute that, uh, that security is well in hands. 
And so that kind of motivated thinking at the highest political level uh, can have a very unfortunate effect on how uh, intelligence or information gets analyzed and, and whether it gets uh, you know, received at the political level in terms of any action. So that, that I think is going to, whether or not that's reflected in you know, future Israeli commission reports, I think that's a major part of the failure that took place here. But is this, though, a comparison or an analogy with asymmetrical warfare versus having these huge, powerful militaries that the U.S. and Israel has, where you've got billion-dollar ships and the latest aircraft and tanks, etc.? And in the case of 9-11, the attackers used box cutters. And in the case of October the 7th in uh, Gaza... And on the southern border of Israel, they used paragliders and motorcycles and homemade drones. So is that a problem in a sense that the Israelis military and intelligence officials dismissed this incredibly detailed report saying it was aspirational and that the Palestinians just simply didn't have the capabilities to really attack Israel? Uh, is that the hubris of having a powerful military without recognizing the nature of asymmetrical warfare and how uh, it can end up biting you? Well, yes, I think I think that is part of it. And in addition to the you know, political motivations I mentioned before, I think there was a genuine belief throughout much of Israeli officialdom uh, that because and this, this is a fact, because Hamas is just so much weaker in terms of military force than the Israeli Defense Forces, which are the most powerful military in the Middle East, uh, that they simply couldn't pull off something like this, and thus we can dismiss it as aspirational. Yes, I think you have a fair point, uh, Ian, that this is a, a recurrent problem uh, for any country that has an obvious military advantage over its uh, uh, most recognizable foes. So this report, apparently, Jericho Wall, was f widely disseminated and discussed among senior intelligence and, and military officials in Israel. What do we know about why it didn't... Well, we don't know whether or not it reached the political level to the cabinet level or the Netanyahu level, do we? Uh, we don't. Uh, but, you know, whether or not it did, you can have this... You know, trickle-down effect of motivated thinking that I referred to uh, previously, and so you know the anonymous colonel who uh, blew off the uh, the analyst in the section 8200 uh, that that you know worked on this problem, and not only had this uh, document uh, that you mentioned, but also had analyzed the uh, Hamas uh, activities on the ground, which seemed to be a rehearsal for this kind of thing. Uh, that that blowing off. Uh, can, can in part reflect uh, the motivated thinking at levels higher up. Well, but was the colonel who blew it off male and the, the analysts that were saying, you know, this is, looks like it's for real and we should take it seriously, were they women? Uh, my, I, my, under my understanding is the, the key analyst who was pushing this uh, was female, uh, I don't know the gender of the colonel, but I wouldn't be surprised if a gender uh, uh, factor was was part of what we're we're looking at here. But Ian, let me mention one other thing. You know, based on my own experience in the U.S. intelligence community, which I think, in addition to the motivated thinking I was referring to before, is probably part of this failure. And that is, 
you know, it's, it seemed to have been an established judgment in, in the security community of, of the Israeli government, uh, Israeli bureaucracy, uh, that Hamas, you know, did not want to start a war. Uh, it had, uh, you know, done some negotiation and trying to get a little more freedom uh, for individual residents of Gaza to go into Israel to work, that sort of thing. And so it, it was an established judgment uh, apparently by you know a consensus judgment of the security services that for the time being, this is all before this document uh, you know came up that you mentioned, uh, that Hamas for the time being was was not not seeking a war. You know, I used to have the job of as national intelligence officer for the Near East and South Asia as my last official position of, of having to chair you know meetings, of people representing the various uh, agencies of the U.S. intelligence community, and having having to come up with a consensus, agreed upon, coordinated view for the kind of uh, multi-agency assessments and estimates that we put out. And I can tell you, you know, once you have had a group like that arrive at some sort of judgment, and in this case, we're talking about the judgment that you know Hamas was not going to want to start a war. There's 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 a lot of inertia there, you know. Even if you get some document that, in hindsight, looks like a smoking gun kind of thing, uh, it's not easy to have a whole community of people, you know, change their minds overnight and undo what are typically laboriously arrived at consensus judgments. Uh, it it simply doesn't work that way. And I think part of that, you know, inertia in analytic thinking was probably present in the Israeli apparatus with regard to this question. But the unit that got this document, translated it and disseminated it, uh, Jericho Wall, that unit 8200, that's SIGINT, right? That's Signals Intelligence, akin to the National Security Agency. And my understanding is in in the intelligence world, Signals Intelligence is much more unequivocal than human intelligence, human, which is subjective. Well, what you don't do is just latch on to one report, whether it's it's uh, SIGINT or HUMINT or anything else, any other kind of int that you have a particular faith in. Uh, you know, what the analysts in any intelligence community, whether it's Israeli, U.S. or anywhere else, have to do is look at all of the information, each of each bit of which is typically fragmentary and often ambiguous, and take it all into account. And if you're if they were trying to reach judgments about you know, what Hamas is or is not going to do. They had to factor in all that other stuff, including uh, you know, things that would have been the basis for their earlier judgment that Hamas really wasn't seeking a war. Um, so it is a mistake, even though when we look at these things from the outside and we get one very juicy sounding report, uh, it's a mistake to think that uh, any service ought to jump on one report to the exclusion of everything else. And, you know, those of us on the outside don't know the whole assortment of signals and signals in the in the generic sense and noise that those Israeli analysts uh, were looking at and were listening to. And we don't know what else might have they might have might have been on their computer screens that was pointing them in a different direction. Uh, and that's that's all part of the problem that intelligence analysts face every day. But at the political level, at the cabinet and Netanyahu level, you've made clear, and, and others have as well, that they didn't think that Hamas intended to go to war. 
And a part of that, I think, was the fact that they've that uh, Netanyahu approved nine billion dollars being funneled from Qatar into Gaza. Did he not? Yes, uh, that that was part of it in terms of the relative priority being given to the West Bank and to Gaza. And at you know at the time in, in the at least couple, several months leading up to uh, October, uh, the activity in the West Bank. Um, uh, violent activity uh, had accelerated. I mean, it was a combination of a number of things, what the IDF was doing, what Israeli settlers were doing, and what the Palestinian residents were doing. And so it wasn't surprising, perhaps, that the uh, the government was uh, looking more to the West Bank in terms of where they allocate their resources, since there wasn't anything like that going on at the time in Gaza. But yes, that was, and of course, that's part of what's going to be looked at in all the after-the-fact uh, investigations. But it looks as if Netanyahu and Ben Gvir, in particular, the National Security Minister, who's very much a champion of the settler movement, they did divert soldiers from the Gaza front into the West Bank. There was a, to at least, the very least was to protect a, a bunch of religious nationalists who wanted to go to Jacob's tomb and pray. So that's a part of this. Obviously, this, this will all come out later. At this point, Netanyahu is polling at about 27% in terms of popularity, but I don't know that it's going to be that easy to get rid of him, certainly not until this war is over. But he is incredibly unpopular, and he's apparently privately telling the Likud people and his coalition, which he's trying to hold together, that there will never be a Palestinian state on my watch, which is a complete contradiction to what Biden is saying. He's saying that after this is all over, we're going to work hard to get a two-state solution. Well, in private, Netanyahu is saying the opposite. That is, you know, at the core of uh, how U.S. and Israeli uh, objectives and interests uh, differ. And uh, you're quite right. It's uh, quite the opposite of what the U.S. government is saying. So what does this mean, though? I mean, uh, does this mean more of the same? They've never really enunciated their end game. The, the Israeli right and and the religious nationalists uh, and of course people have pointed out that the call for you know of Judea and Samaria on the Israeli right from the river to the sea is no different from Hamas's call from the river to the sea. Well, we should remember, and we were talking about diversion of resources to the West Bank. The West Bank is the prize. That's what people like Ben Gavir and the other settlers are determined to hold on to. Gaza is the open air prison, uh, the place to, you know, that where Palestinians have been uh, concentrated and, and walled off in a way that uh, uh, the Israeli decision makers hope they can just forget about them. Well, of course, October 7th uh, demonstrated how you can't just forget about them. Uh, right. In terms of end games, end game in Gaza, I mean, there, there is nothing. I mean, other than... Um, uh, in terms of Israeli plans that we've heard about, other than Netanyahu saying, well, we're going to be there for kind of an indefinite future to be in charge of security. I mean, that's that's basically what he said. And we haven't heard much of anything more. I, I, I think, Ian, a large part of what we're seeing now in the Israeli assault, you know, they've got these declared objectives of destroying Hamas, if that were possible. And eliminating Hamas from governing the Gaza Strip in the future. Uh, but I think to a large extent, it is raw rage and revenge. 
um, striking back in anger for October 7th. Uh, and that is not the kind of mindset that leads to any kind of careful planning or maybe any planning at all about what comes next. So the, the short answer to your broader question was, uh, yes, it is unfortunately more of the same. And I don't see the gunfire and the bloodshed and the dropping of bombs in Gaza ending anytime soon. And that, of course, will have devastating consequences for the Biden administration, won't they? Because of the hugging Netanyahu while the agony continues and the opinions of the world community turn against Israel. The great majority of the opinions of the world community, we can find a few exceptions that have some sp specific reason regarding their relations with Israel. But the great majority, especially in what we call the global south, sees, certainly sees what's going on in Gaza now as a, a gross act of inhumanity. And they see the United States as sharing responsibility for it, you know, because of the diplomatic and material backing that uh, U.S. has given basically with no strings attached for years and years to Israel. And now, you know, in addition to the 3.8 billion uh, each year is the request for over 14 more billion dollars to go to Israel. That's the administration request before the Congress right now. And to the extent that that gets used for munitions uh, or anything in the defense area, it's, it's not going to be for uh, purposes that legitimately could be considered with a straight-faced defense, it's going to be used for more wreaking destruction on the Gaza Strip, because that's how the Israeli military is being used right now. And Israel has been the, recipient, the number one recipient of U.S. aid ever since the Camp David Accords. The accumulated total is, what, over $300 billion? Uh, If you allow for inflation, yes. Wow. Well, Paul Piller, I thank you for joining us. Is there any last word, though? Do you think that there's any possibility of some sanity, some humanity returning here before, because we're going to be witnessing months of bloodshed? I wish I could end with a more optimistic note, Ian, but I cannot. And I only see more pessimism as the assault moves into more into southern Gaza, where many of the residents from the north, over a million of them, were told to flee, to sort of get out of the way, and now they will simply be a, uh, subject to even more attacks in the days and weeks to come. Well, Paul Piller, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of the Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center, which he was a Deputy Chief of, and he is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and he has an article, At Responsible Statecraft, Truce Ends, Israel's Assault Resumes on Gaza. We're going to take a brief station break, and with plans underway for a memorial service in New York City for Henry Kissinger, at which praise will be heaped upon the elder statesman, we will speak with the author of an essay at the nation, A People's Obituary of Henry Kissinger.
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Greg Grandin, a professor of history at Yale University and the author of The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mine of America, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and Fordlandia, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and the National Book Critics Circle Award. His books also include The Last Colonial Massacre, Kissinger's Shadow, The Empire of Necessity, and Empire's Workshop, The United States. Latin America and the Making of an Imperial Republic, which was recently updated in an expanded edition. And he has an essay, At the Nation, A People's Obituary of Henry Kissinger. Welcome to Background Briefing, Greg Grandin. Thanks for having me. So I'm sure there's going to be a massive gulf already between the people's obituary and the other obituaries. And of course, with a funeral where all kinds of praise is going to be lavished on the former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, who died on uh, Wednesday at the age of 100. So, Greg, where, where do we come down then? If you've got one group uh, <laughs> telling us what a great statesman he was and how desperately missed he will be, uh, and the other group saying he's a warmonger and a war criminal. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the facts are fairly straightforward in terms of what he did, and and I I know the, it it's a it's almost a stylistic requirement to to call you know war crimes controversies or differences of opinions, and it's interesting Kissinger lived to be a hundred, and it's almost like there was this long simmering building crescendo of adulation toward him at, towards the end of his life it kind of culminated in the in his hundred and hundred birthday celebrations you know it seemed there was reported on you know everywhere he had one here he had one there in the new york public library everybody all of the dignitaries were out and i just think it reflects i mean it reflects a lot of things obviously and and more things that we have time to go into here but it's at least it reflects the I think the bankruptcy of the political class and the intellectual class, the courtiers, pundits that that really have no political imagination. They, you know, they and they're really duped by they're really duped by Kissinger's kind of self presentation as a deep thinker with gravitas. I think Americans are, were particularly susceptible to that image. And look, there's no doubt that Kissinger was an important statesman at a critical moment in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, he came along at a moment when United States policy was about to take a di- United States power authority was about to take a nosedive um, after during Viet as a result of Vietnam. It was in crisis. It was hemorrhaging authority, and Kissinger was both partly responsible for that crisis. Uh, the bombing of Cambodia, the invasion of Cambodia, the extension of the Vietnam War needlessly for another for, for four more years, where um, untold numbers of Vietnamese died and U.S. soldiers died. That war could have been over in 1968 if it weren't for Kissinger. But then he was also in, involved in kind of reconstructing national security state after that crisis. The pivot to the Middle East which involved getting the United States out of Southeast Asia, but also locking the United States into this kind of impasse alliance with a bedrock commitment to Israel and a bedrock commitment to oil-producing Arab states. 
in which Palestinian the Palestinian question was was codified as marginal and irresolvable. That was Kissinger. And it was a result of loss in Vietnam, pivot to the Middle East. And so he, 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 you know, he, was, very, he was very consequential. He was also consequential. He was only a public in office for eight years, you know, under Ford and Nixon. You know, but for the last 30 years or so, or last, I don't know, 50 years, he was the head of Kissinger Associates, which was the kind of concierge service of the world's elites in the transition to neoliberalism, or what we might call um, neo-privatization of the, of the world's economy. And, and we don't even have documents related to what he was involved in there, but Kissinger Associates were, had their hands in the privatization of industries in Russia, in, the, in West Eastern Europe, in, in Latin America, in Africa. Um, so he, he really was an outsized figure that played a huge role in basically creating the world that we live in. Well, of course, he's famous for realpolitik, the notion that an, a nation acts not according to its ideals, but according to its interests. But there's, <laughs> there's a considerable debate or diversity between what you perceive as America's interests. I mean, what are America's interests in foreign policy? Are the interests of corporate America? Are the interests of the power elite? Or are they, are they the interests of, of the security of the American people? Yeah, yeah. And this is, this is another thing about kissing. I mean, there's all of those questions are pertinent and, the, and we can't answer them here, what, what the interests are. I mean, obviously, the interests of the elites and the corporations are different than the interests of the people. I mean, to give you just one example is that, you know, when Bill Clinton came into office, you know, he had a choice. He could have pushed either for health care. He had enough political capital to push for either health care, which, you know, of course, Hillary Clinton was, was involved in, or NAFTA. And Kissinger, they, and he brought Kissinger on as an advisor because he wanted to look like he had a little bit. Kissinger wanted that elder statesman gravitas. And Kissinger advised him to go with NAFTA. <laughs> rather than healthcare, so that's the perfect example of like whose who's interest. But Kissinger wasn't just a realist. I mean, this is the argument that I make in Kissinger's Shadow: is that Kissinger very much influenced by a very subjectivist, uh, romantic, idealist strand of of continental philosophy. The same currents that fed into you know Nazism, a kind of subjective will to power that great men can intervene in history, that, 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 that leaders shouldn't be um, restrained and held back by what they see as limits that they should act. And so Kissinger was also, you know, Kissinger's vision of what power was, was a very kind of anti-foundational vision of power. You know, it didn't rest on any vision of social good. You know, power created power, and in order to maintain power, you had to exercise power. And if you didn't exercise power, then you were losing power. So there was a kind of merry-go-round logic to his political philosophy of action for action's sake, not for any foundational ethical reasoning. So, so Kissinger, in some ways, you know, was very much in, very much influenced by the same kind of philosophical traditions and currents that we often associate with, you know, with the Nazis. 
Well, it's very much current today. Uh, Anti-Semitism, of course, is something that's roiling around, particularly on campuses. But of course, it's worth noting that Richard Nixon referred to Kissinger as, as Jew boy. And clearly, he was sycophantic towards Nixon in public and and in private, he would deride him as he as he would Reagan, and I don't know about Trump, but he gave Trump some gravitas, didn't he? I mean, he just wanted to be relevant. In fact, my my friend Alexander Butterfield, who who was essentially brought down Nixon by revealing the taping system, said that Kissinger used to lobby him all the time for Secret Service protection because he wanted to <laughs> to have have that swagger of having a bunch of bodyguards around him you know so he obviously yeah, uh, yeah. he obviously lived the life that he once coined the phrase that power is the greatest aphrodisiac yeah i mean you know kissinger is good to be, to think with and 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 what's interesting about kissinger is that his life spans a very consequential period in u.s history and and one of one of the trajectories of u.s history during this period was this was the shift to the right and and kissinger Marks that shift very neatly. I mean, he started out as rock, as a liberal Rockefeller Republican, thinking that Nixon was crazy, and then he made his peace with Nixon, and then he thought Reagan was crazy, and he made his peace with Reagan. Then he thought the neocons were crazy, and he made his peace with the neocons, supported the war and I, the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War. Then you know, then I don't know what he thought of Trump before he became president, but then there he was, you know calling Trump, you know, in some ways, Trump was the apotheosis of that, of that vision of, of the great leader unrestrained by reality. (laughs) So it's, you know, it made sense that Kissinger would find in, in Trump, the culmination of his, of his foreign policy ideal, even if things didn't quite work out the way, the way maybe he he would have wanted. Well, but, I don't know whether America has become an idiocracy or, you know, certainly Trump has brought in some of the stupidest people into government like Tommy Tuberville and others in the House and he's elevated this Christian nationalist as his guy in the House. So, you know, you can make the case that Trump has already captured the House and the federal judiciary and may recapture the executive branch. And this will be a triumph of anti-intellectualism and, uh, if not, the beginning of American fascism. So, you know, is there any traction left in the American foreign policy establishment for anything that's serious? Or are we just a reflection of the idiocracy? In other words, you know, John McCain... Yeah, I think it was just a reflection of the idiocracy. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's not just Trump. I think, I mean, look at the reaction to Israel and, and Gaza and just the complete failure, uh, the moral cowardice and complete failure and, vision and you know, vision of any kind of alternative other than mass murder. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you have Ukraine. I mean, they're in mirror images and we're supposed to support both of them for the exact, you know, the exact opposite reason. You know, I, I just think that the, that the foreign policy establishment is, is, is bankrupt. I think the United States is is a power that doesn't know, that just doesn't know how to imagine, and has no vision of what a greater good of a global community could look like, other than one that is defined and and created by 
massive wealth and the trading of political influence. So, Right, but Kissinger was all about the exercise of American power, and that's a problem in itself, isn't it? I mean, look what happened after 9-11. In fact, Biden warned Netanyahu not to respond in the way that we did. But if you have a system or a military-industrial complex that's all about being the hammer, everything out there is a nail. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember talking to Paul Nitzer at one point about Kissinger, and, and he said that through the height of the Cold War, there was floated an idea of what they called geopolitical indigestion. In other words, a much more subtle approach to the Soviet empire, which was to let the Russians take over half of Africa and the rest of the world if they wanted to. That would only accelerate the end of the Soviet Union. But that was far too subtle. Yeah, yeah. That's the American tragedy, that because we spend so much money and prioritize the military, if you got this tool, you use it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, how many wars of China has China been in in the last, you know, in you know since since the revolution? I mean, you know, say what you want about China, they don't waste their resources on, on on creating a, a you know a world empire, and I mean, never mind these catastrophic wars that are just foolish to begin with. I mean, post nine eleven. So, yeah, I agree with you completely, and a lot of that I think is the legacy of. Kissinger, you know, this idea that that you have to act in order to maintain, you know, powers, you know, either ebbing or, or flowing, and you need to act to make sure it's flowing in your direction. Well, the example is, of course, the Vietnam War, where he extended the war unnecessarily and needlessly and cost an enormous amount of suffering. And at the end of the day, the most powerful military in the world couldn't defeat a third world country. But the minute we stop fighting the North Vietnamese, they basically rattled the tin cup and asked us to help them out. So our real power was our economic power and the ability to reconstruct the country and and help it as opposed to destroy it. I mean, isn't that sort of obvious? Yeah, I think so. One would think that that would be a way of of coming up with a more restrained uh, foreign policy based on restraint and based on patience. Um, but we don't have that because we have a far, I, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with an argument that I made in the book, the end of the myth is that, you know, so much of uh, the way that we resolve domestic problems is through foreign policy, right? So that creates a certain kind of manic nature to foreign policy. If the social good you know, is under if expansion and warfare and a certain kind of economic exploitation is seen as the way to achieve domestic tranquility and consensus, then you know that's a powerful incentive not to treat foreign policy as its own rational thing that you know you could deal with. That you know, as you were saying, you know, more, with more and on more subtle rational terms, and thinking about the long term, everything is about you know, the short term, or it's driven by this ideology, like the ideology that drove us into into the war on terror. Right. But then, just in closing, though, Greg, you can make the argument that in spite of Kissinger's use of American power, at the end of the day, we don't control our political destiny, it seems, because we get whipsawed all the time by obscure 
actors, particularly in the Middle East, going back to Sirhan Sirhan, who killed Bobby Kennedy and therefore opened up the path for Nixon to the White House. And then you have, we now learn that Reagan emissaries, including the governor of Te- former governor of Texas, were behind the October surprise, where another obscure character, the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, was able to hold, basically destroy Carter's chances of a second term. Uh, and, and you can go through bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and all of these other characters up to the moment where a bunch of terrorists from Hamas have completely changed the situation about Biden uh, and he's bleeding support from young people because he's hugging Netanyahu closely. Uh, again, obscure actors whipsawing us. So, uh, well, we'll I- let you- but but the conditions in which we let ourselves be whipsawed is another question, right? It's like, you know, like why do we? we you know, those are, those weren't the only responses to those things, and and it right. was, you know, you could say that it was it was Reagan's agents that were whipsawing us, you know, when they right. when they made the deal, and it was it was Nixon's agents which were whipsawing us when they scuttled the Vietnam talk. So yeah, so but I agree with you. I mean, it, well, it, it I, is. It, yeah, I'm, I mean, I guess to encapsulate the argument is, why do we keep taking the bait? And Israel, of course, has just taken the bait as well. Well, I think this. I think there is a lot of ideological interest in which um, there's a lot of ideology in determining what people perceive to be the interests of the United States as as aggressive responses, as looking tough, as you know, and all of that. So, um, I mean, why they keep taking the bait? I mean. We haven't had, I think, a responsible ruling class for quite some time in this country. I mean, we've had a ruling class, and I, I include the Clintons in this completely, Bill Clinton, the Clinton administration, that these aren't great statesmen, you know. They, they're they not seizing them. I mean, look, we, got, we, we won the Cold War. The Berlin Wall came down. The Soviet Union collapsed. And what, did, and what did the United States do? The United States pushed a punishing brand of economic austerity and privatization on the Soviet Union, on the former Soviet Union, that was bound to fail and bound to create a Putin, you know? I mean, you know, I mean, and this wasn't an accident. The United States had just done it in Latin America. They knew what they were doing, you know, all all of the money doctors that were in Latin America then went to the Soviet Union. Um, But, you know, Pinochet was held up as a model. And so the United States... we came out of World War Two, and we implemented a Marshall Plan. And uh, you know, Latin Americans have a lot of critiques of the Marshall Plan. I won't go into that, but you know, the idea was to build. You rebuilt Europe, and you rebuilt the United States. We came out of the Cold War with something like a Devil's Marshall Plan, where the goal was to deconstruct, to take everything apart, take the factories apart, take the industries mm-hmm. apart. You know, uh, veterans coming back from the Gulf Wars, you know, literally took jobs, taking apart their factories and shipping them off to Mexico. You know, (laughs) as we were dismantling welfare, as we were dismantling, as we were launching an assault on unions and then what we were doing in Russia. You know, we created the nightmare that was that was Russia. We pushed hard that program of privatization and austerity that, you know, rather than a more. Exactly. Generous vision of a of rebuilding a country that you know that was more humane and sustainable. Right. After spending trillions to win the Cold War, we yeah. w- wouldn't part with chump change to secure the victory. 
And I mean, here's the thing. It's crazy. Here's the yeah. thing. We treated Russia. We treated Russia like an occupied country, but we also treated ourselves like we were an occupied country. We did the same thing to ourselves. The right. de- the the deindustrialization, the the austerity. You know, we treated ourselves like we were an occupied country right. after we're, after the Cold War. Well, great. <laughs> you know that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I really appreciate the conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you, Ian. Bye bye. Bye bye. And again, I've been speaking with Greg Randon, who's a professor of history at Yale University and the author of The End of the Myth From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and Fordlandia, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. His books also include The Last Colonial Massacre, Kissinger's Shadow. The Empire of Necessity and Empire's Workshop, the United States, Latin America and the Making of an Imperial Republic, recently updated in an expanded edition, and he has an essay, At the Nation, A People's Obituary of Henry Kissinger. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into how deregulation made airline travel so miserable and how a lack of investment in infrastructure has made air travel increasingly dangerous with air traffic controllers pushed to the brink as they rely on antiquated equipment. I laughed and shook his hand And made my way back home I searched for home and land For years and years I roamed I gazed a gazeless stare At all the millions here We must have died alone Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ganesh Chitaraman, who is a law professor and director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator for Political Economy and Regulation. He's the author of several books, including The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution and The Great Democracy. And he's a member of the Federal Aviation Committee's Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee and was previously a senior advisor to Senator Elizabeth Warren on her presidential campaign. His latest book just out is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ganesh Sataraman. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, a lot of our listeners, uh, Ganesh, have just traveled over the Thanksgiving holiday and and are planning to travel over the Christmas holiday. And uh, your book points out (laughs) extremely clearly and in an entertaining way, uh, I guess, if that's the right way to describe how deregulation has made airline travel so miserable. But the other issue, of course, is how a lack of investment in infrastructure has made airline travel increasingly dangerous with air traffic controllers pushed to the brink as they rely on antiquated equipment. And uh, there's an article in, lead article, in fact, in Saturday's New York Times, Drunken Asleep on the Job, Air Traffic Controllers Pushed to the Brink. So um, where do we start? (laughs) On the book or on uh, the fact that uh, it's even dangerous to fly, let alone miserable? 
Well, I think what both of these situations show is fundamentally that what makes flying miserable uh, or problematic or troubling or difficult are all fundamentally about public policy. We make choices as a country through our elected representatives on how we want industries to work. Uh, That includes funding air traffic controllers and hiring them so that we have a sufficient number of people so that they're not exhausted and are not overworked. It also means having a regulatory system to ensure that we don't have a flying experience that is so terrible for individuals and that is problematic for the industry. And unfortunately, I think where we are is that we haven't done enough in the public policy realm to fix what have become glaring problems to anyone who flies. That's for passengers, all of the dozens of little things that are frustrating, the smaller and shrinking seats, the additional fees that you have to pay to check a bag or even pick your seat, the delays, the cancellations, the the lack of refunds when that happens. It's the fact that you have to connect through these big hubs like Dallas or Charlotte or Atlanta uh, to get anywhere. And at the level of the industry, there's a whole other set of challenges. You know, this is an industry that has had boom times in the 90s and in the 2010s, but then has seen major crises with 9-11 and COVID and then come to Congress asking for a taxpayer bailout or support program. That's not a healthy industry, one that has to go up and down from booms and busts and get support from the public. At the same time, it's an industry that also has been dropping service from lots of cities around the country. We've seen 74 cities lose one of the major carriers serving their city since COVID. Some cities have lost all major carrier service. And those are real problems for the country, in addition to being problems for individual passengers. And ultimately, the blame lies with Congress, because these are all problems we could fix if Congress would get together and fix them. So, Ganesh, why then did the U.S. decide to focus and concentrate on air travel as opposed to rail travel and across Europe, of course, almost all the cities in Europe are connected with rail and a lot of it's high speed and very comfortable and very convenient. Why was that decision made to make rail travel, you know, defunded or almost extinguish it at the same time to concentrate on air travel? As you pointed out now, it's down to what, four monopolies, right? There's fewer and fewer carriers covering fewer and fewer cities? Well, one of the most important things for a country is to think about a national transportation policy and how the different modes and types of transportation interact with each other. In in the United States, part of what happened was while we had a very expansive rail network in the early 20th century, the development of the highway system and of trucking Uh, made that mode of transportation more dominant uh, and increasingly gained uh, share as compared to to railroads. Railroad deregulation also led to abandonment of rail lines uh, and the shrinking of the geographic scope of what was possible for rail in the United States. Um, All of this, of course, happened alongside airlines. I think one of the important things about airlines in the United States is that 
you know, the United States is a geographically vast country. Um, and it is really fast to take a flight if you want to go from Los Angeles to New York. Um, uh, and that's something that air travel offers, which is a great benefit to the country. And so I think, you know, there was a real uh, need and desire starting in the 1930s to focus on ensuring that we had air service all across the country, including to smaller cities and more remote places, in part as a way to stitch together our, our really big country and make sure that people could get uh, all over the country uh, with ease. But traveling now from Los Angeles to New York or from San Diego, which is they've had some really serious near misses recently in San Diego, I mean, the idea that we have defunded and underinvested in air traffic control and you've got these people, you know, working overtime and taking drugs and uh, to stay awake and, and numbing themselves with alcohol because they're in so much stress because the equipment is so old. Some of it operates on floppy disks, for God's sake. You know, th this is insane. I mean, I guess this is the American priority, though, right? The priority is to give tax breaks to the billionaires. And, you know, you've got this new character heading up the house now who's attacking the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, because he's gay. I mean, this is the political reality. And as long as they serve the billionaires before they invest in infrastructure, America's going to become more and more a kind of third world country. I think one of the important things about the current moment is that as these stories come up, uh, there's actually right now in Congress pending a reauthorization of the Federal Aviation uh, Administration. And that piece of legislation, when it passes, offers a real opportunity for members of Congress to make changes, uh, authorize more um, additional spending in order to ensure that we have the kind of infrastructure that we need in the airline industry. And so I, I think that's a real opportunity right now. And, you know, my hope is that Congress will uh, step up and actually uh, actually do that, um, in part because this is something that is important not just for passengers and all of us who travel, but it's important for the airlines, too. So on this issue, at least, uh, all the big airlines, um, the airlines, uh, workers and employees and unions and passengers, consumers are all lined up that this is a positive thing to do. So, you know, m my hope is that that Congress will be able to hear that in part because everyone's pointing in the same direction. So uh, since the c Congress's priority is to serve the billionaires, and certainly that's the priority of at least two members of the Supreme Court, the billionaires, of course, have private jets, but <laughs> they rely on the FAA for flying safety, right? So maybe that might wake them up? I think the fact that everyone who flies relies on on this basic infrastructure is important, and it's something that gives me hope for why we might see serious change. Right. Well, I don't mean to harp on uh, the fact that we have increasing inequality and our representatives have been captured by money and so it seems as the Supreme Court. But you are heartened by this new um, possibility of the FAA getting proper funding? I mean, they can't even fund uh, Israel or Ukraine uh, uh, now, and they're focusing now on funding the border wall. 
which the Democrats are going to have to agree to in order to get the, their other priorities through. So you're confident that they might uh, be able to fund the FAA and make our airline travel safer? You know, I, I don't know if Congress will or won't and, you know, have, have long ago decided it's not a, not a smart thing to try to predict uh, the future, especially when it comes to, to congressional action. But what, what I do think is that for all the people who are out there who find flying miserable and think that the experience has gotten to be terrible and that there really needs to be changed, now is a good time to contact your representatives and tell them to fix it. Um, and it's a good time because they have an opportunity to do so. And, uh, and it's a good time because if they hear from enough people, um, maybe it puts them over the edge. And, you know, one of the one of the things that is great about being in a democracy uh, is that we can actually use our voices to try to do that. And the people in these jobs do listen, um, even if it may not always seem that way. Uh, so I think, you know, part of part of what we need to do is to create the pressure and the conditions that they feel like this is something that they need to do. Um, and hopefully that makes it something that they will do. But just in the last couple of minutes, Ganesh, you know, your book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It, its underlying message, at least what I, from what I get, is that unregulated capitalism has been incredibly detrimental to the United States. And again, going back to the Supreme Court, they're going to even unregulate it even more if they can. One of the points that I make in the book is that we had a system of regulated competition in the airline industry for many decades in the middle of the 20th century. And then with deregulation, we didn't actually end up in the dream world of what the deregulators promised with dozens, even more than a hundred airlines operating efficiently and competitively in the system and with no real downsides. We ended up in a far worse system in which we have a small number of airlines, fewer than were dominant even in the regulatory, the regulated period. Um, we have less competition at airports. And as a result, we've seen declining service in large parts of the country, reductions in the quality of service. And I think that is something that has been a real problem. And, you know, what I hope from the book is that people will see that we don't have to live with the airline system we have. We don't have to accept how miserable it is. Uh, we can change it. And all it takes for us to change it is to push for those changes and, and to get them put into law. And so my hope is that people will, will read the book. Um, it's a great read when you're delayed on your next flight, uh, but also will act to try to change the system and get us back to understanding that we actually need regulation in order to make sure that we have the kinds of things that we want out of the airline industry, because our current unregulated system isn't delivering for us. So just in closing, uh, does that mean that we finally get over Ronald Reagan, the idea that uh, government is the problem, not the answer? Yeah, I think, I think the, um, one of the things that we, we need to remember is that the government is what we do together. And when we come together to try to solve problems, um, we do that through our government. And that's exactly what we want to be doing as a country. We want to be solving problems. And the way we do that together is, is through our representatives and through the government. And that's what we should be focused on. Well, Ganesha Taraman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me.
And again, I've been speaking with Ganesha Taraman, who's a law professor and the director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator for Political Economy and Regulation. And he's the author of several books, including The Crisis of of the Middle Class Constitution and The Great Democracy. And he's a member of the Federal Aviation Committee's Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee and was previously a senior advisor to Senator Elizabeth Warren on her presidential campaign. And his latest book just out is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.